All right, let's open up now to Revelation chapter 6. We are still in the book of Revelation. We're in chapter 6. We're knocking out a chapter a week. This is unbelievable. Never has such a pace been set by this preacher before. It's actually astounding. Certainly the work of the Holy Spirit there. But that does mean, because we're covering big chunks, that there's a lot of stuff that we're not covering in the study that is worthy of coverage, so to speak. There's lots of... uh, tertiary issues that come up when we're studying the book of Revelation that that we need to know about and that will help our understanding of the book that we're just not going to take the time to delve into uh, as we're in the book of Revelation. So we've made those especially available to you on the website this week. So if you go to our sermons page, you're going to find a bunch of sermons I gave on the past on specific topics that relate to our text today and other texts in the book of Revelation. The Antichrist will come up today. There's two whole sermons on the Antichrist, who he is, how he figures in the end time scenario, what he'll do, that's there. Uh, The rapture is a bit of a background to all that we're talking about, and I'm not going to mention it today, but there's a couple whole sermons on the rapture there. World conditions in the last times, the signs of the times, there's a sermon about that there. Um, There's a sermon, since we're entering into the tribulation period today on our text, there's a whole sermon on what the tribulation period is, how we're to view that and think about that, a whole hour-long teaching devoted to that. So go to the website. You can get those. The code for the password is RC03RV09. It is case-sensitive. There's a code because those are not for the rest of the world. They are for you as our local church. So go and get those messages and be educated. Okay, we in Revelation chapter 6. Ventura Campus will be joining us. Let's give them some love. We love Ventura. The title of this message is a lengthy one, as the sermon will be. It is, The Kindness of God Revealed in His Patient and Progressive Judgment. It's important. That's that's an important slant. That's an important approach to this chapter, to the tribulation period, to God's judgment and his wrath in the book of Revelation, that it reveals the kindness of God, God's judgment does, especially in the patient and progressive manner in which he judges the world. And we'll see that in the text today. So we're going to read the whole chapter at first right now together, and then we'll work through it. Revelation chapter 6, I'm reading from the New American Standard translation, verse 1. John, remember, he's in heaven and he's seeing these things. And I saw when the Lamb, identified as Jesus from last week, broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying as with a voice of thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. And when he broke the second seal, Jesus, when he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come. And another red horse went out. And to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth that men should slay one another and a great sword was given to him. And when he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, come. And I looked and behold, a black horse and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard as it were a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not harm the oil and the wine. And when he broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come. And I looked and behold, an ashen horse. And he who sat on it had the name Death and Hades was following with him. 
And authority was given to him over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. And when he broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, wilt thou refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each one of them a white robe. And they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, should be completed also. And I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black, as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood, and the stars fell from the sky to the earth, as if a fig tree casting its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. And the sky was split apart like a scroll when it's rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth, and the great men of the commanders, and the rich and the strong, and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains." And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, truly and for sure this is your word, but it's a hard word. It's hard to hear in its content. It's hard to understand in its imagery. It's hard to wrap our minds around judgment coming to earth and your righteous wrath. It's a big deal. We're asking, Lord, that you would give us understanding, right understanding about your nature, your love, your grace, your mercy, and your wrath and your judgment. That we would rightly understand these things and live rightly in light of them. Thank you that your word is always given to us from you as a loving father, not to scare us, certainly to warn us, and to lead us in paths of righteousness for thy name's sake. So give us understanding. Help us, Lord. Please help me. Please help me as I teach and preach. Please help us to hear, to respond, and to obey, and to rejoice in our great Savior, Jesus, who has delivered us from the wrath to come. Thank you. We rejoice in that this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Uh, It's helpful as we're moving through the book of Revelation. If you were here for the previous teaching, you know, basically what I'm saying is come to church every week during the whole book of Revelation. But, you know, if you miss a week, you miss a lot because they build on one another. There wasn't chapters originally. It's one long vision and one revelation. And so when we look at chapter 6, having heard chapters 4 and 5 really help your understanding of some of the reference, the identity of some of the characters and some of the stuff that's going on. So I cannot, nor do you want me, to kind of recap every week and bring us up to speed and remind us of those things. So it's important in our study so that you don't feel lost and all the feelings that come along with that, that you catch up on the sermons on the website if you didn't hear them the week before. So we can all be following along. These things build upon one another. And the goal of the Word of God is that it would be understood. Theologians talk about something called the doctrine of perpiscuity. Perpiscuity is a fancy word for 
understanding. The doctrine of perspicuity says that the word of God is meant to be understood. God wanted to communicate to us when he gave us his word. So we're to understand these things. There's some challenges involved in that, but we're trying. So uh, there's a little how we should move forward in this. Now, as we get to chapter six, the gist of it is this. It's pretty evident. But what's happening is now God's wrath has come. We saw last week the scroll of the wrath in the hand of the Father and that Jesus was the only one worthy to take the scroll to unleash God's justice on earth because he brought God's mercy to earth in the incarnation, in the cross, in the resurrection. And in chapter six now, the judgment of God has come to earth. This is a future judgment, I believe, from my perspective and interpretation. This is speaking of future events. So some of these things are unfolding in general now, but in specificity, it is a future event called the tribulation period. The Bible speaks about it much, and it's generally God's wrath unleashed on an unrepentant world. But what we see in this text and through the whole book of Revelation is that when God's judgment comes to earth, it unfolds over time. And this in itself, as my title suggests, is an act of God's kindness. It doesn't come in a cataclysmic, all at once, devastating, that's it sort of way. We're told about it beforehand. There's discernible signs, and then it unfolds over time. This is God's kindness. We must keep that in mind as we look as his judgment come to to earth, because it's difficult. We must also remember that what preceded God's judgment on earth was the coming of Christ to earth to die on the cross in our place. The cross precedes judgment. God brought to us first mercy and grace in the person of Jesus. And we also must remember that judgment is followed by God's righteous rule and reign, establishment of his kingdom, the renewal of all things, the reversal of everything that has gone wrong. No more crying, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more death. All things made brand new. So that is to say, judgment, though it's horrific, wasn't first mercy and grace were, nor is it the final word. Righteousness and renewal are. Mercy and grace were needed because sin deserves to be judged. And if there's going to be renewal and righteousness on earth, sin must be judged. And so we have before us in the next several chapters, judgment of God to come to earth. Now, to be sure, the imagery and the language and the pictures given us in the book of Revelation about God's wrath are meant, are meant to cause a little shock and awe. They really are. They're meant to be vivid pictures. They're meant to be rattling, startling pictures. They're meant to cause a little shock and awe. Not that we might be afraid, but that we might lovingly be warned by God. God's goal is to save sinners. Not to scare them, but to save them. And the scriptures say that he draws sinners with his kindness. But part of his kindness is revealing to us the coming judgment. And he does so in vivid terms. The imagery, the pictures, the phraseology, the account, 
vision John receiving has a little bit of shock and awe. But people might see that there truly is a judgment, that it's gnarly that God is just and sin will get what it's deserved, what it deserves, and so that people would repent. It's not just for the world, but it's also for the church. If God is going to judge sin ultimately and radically, then we as his people ought to not engage in sin. That's simple and logical. If God is going to judge sin and it's just radical, then we as his followers ought to make the decision that sin is not the way to go. If God has to judge sin in order to bring righteousness to the world, then we as his followers right now ought to choose righteousness and endeavor to follow Jesus in paths of righteousness for his namesake. So it's a warning for us as as well, excuse me, God's people, that judgment is coming. But again, this judgment is meant to be seen, taken. It must be understood as God's kindness. Because what sin does is destroys. Sin always destroys. Destroyed humanity's relationship with God. It destroys marriages, destroys children, destroys lives, destroys communities, cultures, nations. The world is suffering under the weight and the effects of sin. Sin is always destructive for humanity. And God loves the world. So God deals with sin first through grace and mercy in the cross, ultimately through righteous and renewal, but also he judges sin because he's a God of love. And we would expect that a God of love would judge sin. We often make it too personal. We think about our own sin or the sin of people that we know that aren't Christians. And so we think, gosh, I just wish that God wouldn't judge sin. But, but try to think about it objectively. What about all the murder through all the ages? What about all the slaughter? What about the raping and the maiming and the trafficking of people? There are things in our world that must be judged if God is a God of love. If God doesn't judge those things, if he says the raping and the maiming and the, and the murdering and the trafficking and the genocide and the slaughter... The iniquity, the wickedness, the injustice, I'm just going to turn a blind eye on it. How could we ever say that such a God were a God of love? These things must be avenged if God loves. It's not a contradiction to say that God is a God of love and a God of wrath. If God is a God of love, then he must have a wrath for evil. Or he's not at all of God of love. So we must remember when we look at God's judgment, though, it's horrific. It is actually his love and his kindness that he will deal with sin. First, through mercy and grace at the cross, ultimately through righteous and renewal. But all of that requires judgment. And in revealing his judgment to the world, God is calling us away from sin. In showing us that sin is worthy of judgment, he's calling us away from it, non-believers and believers alike. He's showing us that it's not his will, that it's not right. And in calling us away from sin in its destructive nature, God is being kind and helping us to come to our senses and escape, excuse me, the destructive nature of it, but also in inviting us to escape judgment. Book of Thessalonians says that Jesus is the one who delivers us from the wrath to come. 
And look at God. He's not, he's not hiding anything. There's no cards behind his back. He says, I'm coming to judge the world because I'm a God of love and I'm righteous. Here's what judgment will look like. You can even tell a little bit when it might come. And I'm calling you to escape judgment through putting your faith in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross that you might receive by faith the fact that he was judged for you, that you could be forgiven of your sins and escape the wrath to come. It's kind of God to show us these things. He's inviting the whole world to escape judgment. Now, last week in chapter 5, we saw Jesus presented as a lion and a lamb. He's a lion who will bring God's justice to earth, but he can only do so because he was a lamb who brought God's grace and mercy to earth. We saw him in chapter 5 as a lion and a lamb, the only one worthy to take the scroll of God's judgment because he was the only one who brought God's mercy to earth. And now he begins to break open the seals and the judgment begins to unfold. Again, he first brought grace and mercy. Let's remind ourselves of John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. There's God's first effort. Let's not judge people. Let's save people. Christ being judged in their stead. What a wonderful act of God's love. And then we see in scripture that God is surprisingly slow to judge. It's a part of his character and his nature. Look what it says in the Psalms. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and great in loving kindness. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and is kind in all his deeds. We see in scripture often that God is actually slow to judge. He's not like an angry judge just waiting. I just can't open a, I just can't wait to open a can on everybody. That's, that's not God. He's slow to anger, full of loving kindness, chesed, mercy, grace. Some would say that he's too slow to judge. Look at this passage from Peter. It reminds us the Lord is not slow about his promise, speaking about his promise to judge sin as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, toward humanity, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God's wrath actually reveals God's kindness in the patient and progressive manner in which he reveals it. In first, verses 9 and 10 of our text of chapter 6, we see the martyrs there, people who have been killed for their faith, and they're kind of bummed at the patience of God. Did you see that in verses 9 and 10? They say, God, when are you going to avenge our blood? We were murdered on earth for being followers of Jesus Christ. When is there going to be justice on earth? And it said to them, slow down, hold on. Here's a nice little white robe. Rest a little bit. It's coming. God is incredibly patient. He's that same way with you, isn't he? It's that same way with me. It's really patient with us, really kind. And what we see in this chapter is the kindness of God revealed in his patient and progressive judgment. 
His wrath not all poured out at once in an absolute manner, but it unfolds in discernible and foretold stages. His judgment comes progressively because he desires for people to be saved. And so there's seven seals, and they're broken. In order, And this unfolds over a period of time, over the whole tribulation period. This chapter takes us from the beginning of it all the way to the end when Jesus returns. He breaks the seals progressively. And at every juncture, as his, his judgment increases and becomes more clear and more cataclysmic, what he's doing is leaving opportunity for people to repent. Even when judgment comes, there is opportunity for people to repent. God has always left room for repentance. Look at what Paul said when he was speaking in Athens. He said, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, right? People in rebellion to God. God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. That's speaking of Jesus Christ, a righteous one who brings the justice of God to earth. God has always left room for repentance, and even as his wrath comes, there is still room. And we could assume that when God's wrath is poured out on the world, that many will repent. I'm sure that some will open up the book of Revelation and say, oh my gosh, this is the wrath of God. I had better get right. But what's shocking is that there's many who won't. Even today, aren't you surprised when our friends and our family hear the good news of Jesus Christ clearly and say, nah, like, wait a minute, there's no loss here. There's no bad, there's no downside. And yet many won't repent during the time it says, um, verse 16, And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. There are those who would rather die than repent of their sins. Look in chapter 16. Turn to chapter 16 real quick. We see the same thing. This is astounding to me. Revelation 16. Starting verse 8. And the fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun and it was given to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with fierce heat and they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues. And they did not repent so as to give him glory. Verse 10, and the fifth angel poured out his bowl upon the throne of the beast and the kingdom became dark and they gnawed their tongues because of pain and they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and they did not repent of their deeds. They're cognizant of the source of judgment. They know this is coming from God. And instead of repenting, And God is leaving room for it. Like, repent and be forgiven of your sins. Instead of that, they blaspheme God. They they curse God. That's astounding to me. And the way God does this shows both his mercy and his justice. He's shown mercy in leaving room for repentance. And when there are those who refuse to repent, God is shown shown to be just. In other words, hard words. 
They deserve it. Grace and mercy came. Room for repentance was extended. They refused it and they blasphemed God. There is nothing left for them but judgment. God is shown to be both merciful and just. And the refusal of humanity to repent, both in this future scenario and now, shows our true colors. John, Jesus speaking, right after John 3, 16 and 17, says, he who believes in him, speaking of himself, the Messiah, is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. That's the judgment. That's just. That's justified. And that's revealing. Why would someone not come to Jesus? Why would someone refuse the forgiveness of sins? When he says the light has come, he's speaking of himself, his incarnation, his cross, his resurrection. Men loved the darkness rather than the light. And they would rather the rocks fall on them and they'd rather curse God than repent of their sins. Such is the power of sin. The blinding effect of sin. Thanks be to God. For the scriptures tell us that when Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead, that he broke the power of sin so that men and women could be saved and have new natures and live new lives. This is truly good news. And even though in Revelation 6, the day of God's judgment has come to earth, it comes patiently and progressively because God is kind and loving. In revealing this, he uses imagery. We have the four riders of the apocalypse, it's known. There's pictures of horses and scales and bows and swords, and it's imagery. It's not as though this is going to actually happen, that there's horses that are released, maybe, but it's, it's imagery. Remember, it was a seal with riding on it. He's breaking the seals. The contents that were written of the judgment of the world are shown to John in a vision. This is a vision that John receives. It's vivid imagery. It's in high def. And so each of the seals communicates something through that image, and I've made this little chart to show us what they communicate. The first seal, and Jesus spoke of all these in Matthew 24, the first seal reveals to us the false Messiah, the false world leader, the Antichrist. The second seal, worldwide war. The third seal, famine. The fourth seal, death. The fifth seal, justice for the martyrs, promise. The sixth seal, nature disturbed. And the seventh seal isn't spoken of until Revelation chapter 8. When the seventh seal is broken, then seven trumpet judgments are released. So of these seven seals, six of them are judgment, and the seventh one brings out seven more facets of God's judgment to come upon the earth, and we'll get to that when we get to chapter 8, going all the way through verse 11. Now, we look at those seals. Again, the first seal, verse 2, and I looked and behold a white horse, and him who sat upon it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer I want you to turn to Matthew 24 and keep a finger in Revelation. We're going to flip back and forth here between Matthew and Revelation for a moment. Matthew 24. 
Jesus told us that there'd be days like these. It says in Matthew 24, this is known as the Olivet Discourse. I've got a sermon on this online if you want to hear about it more in depth. Matthew 24, verse 3. And as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? The period in which we're speaking about. The last days, God's coming judgment. They said, just just tell us exactly what this is going to look like. And Jesus said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will mislead many. Jesus says that the last days will be characterized by deception and by false claims of saviorhood, of messiahship. Many claiming to have the answers to the woes of humanity. And we saw in our study of 1 John that there are already many antichrists, lowercase a, in the world. But we know from the rest of scripture that there is coming an antichrist, uppercase a. And that he will be this last day's world, lure, world leader who will bring false peace into the world. We're told in the book of Thessalonians that he comes with mighty power and signs and wonders and he works deception so that the nations begin to follow after him. This is, I believe, the first rider on the horse. See how he's sort of a pseudo-Christ? He comes on a white horse. In Revelation chapter 19, we're told that Jesus comes on a white horse. He has a bow and a crown is given to him. But in Revelation 19, we're told that Jesus wears many crowns because he's a king of kings. And this world leader comes to conquer false messiah, the Antichrist. We'll hear much more about him as we move further into the book of Revelation. You could hear about it online. But the first releasal from the scroll of judgment is that there comes a world leader who appears to answer the cry of all the world. What are we going to do about ISIS? What are we going to do about Israel and the Palestinian conflict? What are we going to do about Iraq? What about Afghanistan? What about Russia? What about our economy? What about racism? What about human trafficking? What are we going to do about all these things? And there will come one who will seem to have the answers we glean from Scripture. And what God does in this first judgment is allow humanity to get what they want. Important point. A huge part of God's judgment is allowing humanity to get what they want. God had told Israel, I will be your king. And at one point, Israel came to God and said, listen, we want a king that we can see like all the other nations. This is too esoteric. This is too ethereal. This is too weird. We want a king that we can see like all the other nations. We want to be like everyone else. And God said, I'm telling you, if you have a human king, he will make your life difficult because that's what kings on earth do. And they said, we want one. And he allowed them to have what they wanted. And I want you to notice that all of these first four seals the horsemen, so to speak, are all God allowing humanity to do and get what they want. He's not having to release any active judgment. It's passive. The nations will go to war. Famine will ensue. 
injustice in the marketplace. That's where it says you could buy a little wheat, but it will cost you a denarius. A denarius was a day's wage. Economics out of control. Injustice, don't harm the wine in the, in the what did it say there? The wine and whatever it was. The oil. The, thank you, the wine and the oil. That was the stuff, the resources of rich people. So there's economic injustice here. Don't harm the oil and the wine. The rich will get richer, the poor will get poorer. It'll cost you a day's wages to make some pancakes. Sometimes God's judgment takes the form of his allowing people's own desires and actions to run their course. He does this even in the lives of his children. Right? If we continue to sin and ignore his word, then our consciences are seared and our hearts are hardened and we reap the consequences of our actions. Galatians chapter six, do not be deceived. You will reap what you sow. And the beginning of God's judgment on earth is just letting people accumulate for themselves the leader that they want, this false messiah, this antichrist. Wars come out of this scenario. Again, Matthew 24, Jesus reveals this. Verse six, and you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See to it that you're not frightened for those things must take place, but that's not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And in various places, there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pains. All of this is God in his judgment allowing people to pursue their course of rebellion. That's a form of God's judgment. Turn to Romans chapter 1. Now you have many fingers in many places, but that's okay. Romans chapter 1, and we'll read a little scripture that talks about this happening at all times. I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation uh, because the language is simple and it's a pretty... I don't know. There's a lot of big words for me. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 20. You can just listen if, if you want. Romans 1, verse 20. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities. His eternal power and divine nature is clearly seen. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they knew God. In other words, they know God exists but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they begin to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. They worshiped stuff, creation rather than the creator. Now look what God does. Look at God's judgment here, verse 24. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. Pause right there. That's a radical statement. What we don't realize often is that the Holy Spirit is always present in the world to convict humanity of sin, righteousness, and judgment. As an act of God's love and kindness, the Holy Spirit is always intending to draw people away from sin and to the Savior always working in the world to do that. But there are times, there are places, there are spaces where God removes 
that influence and lets people get exactly what they want as a form of judgment. Right, you, ever, you ever do that with a kid? That's what you really want? Okay. Go ahead. Eat five pounds of sugar before you go to bed. Do it. Go ahead. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their heart desired. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshiped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. That is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men. And as a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. Since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things that should never be done. Not just talking about sexuality, that's just the example Paul uses there, but all sorts of things that we as people do. Verse 29 makes that clear. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. They are backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. They invent new ways of sinning, and they disobey their parents. They refuse to understand, break their promises, are heartless, and have no mercy. Here's, here's a kicker, verse 32. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die. Yet they do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them too. That's, that's heavy stuff. And part of God's judgment before his righteousness comes to earth is going to be allowing people to pursue their own Messiah, their own way, their own endeavors, their own rebellion. God doesn't have to do anything but remove his influence toward righteousness. And as a result, humanity suffers. False savior, war, famine, pestilence, death, inflation, injustice in the marketplace. These are the outworking of God's moral laws. Just like God has placed physical laws in the universe, right? If I step off this stage, I'm going to fall three feet to the ground. That's a physical law. God put that there. Now, I can be mad about that law all I want. I can even deny it exists. There is no gravity and step off the stage. I'm going to hit the deck. God has physical laws in the universe. God has moral laws in the universe. And when humanity pursues its own agenda and wickedness and rebellion to God, there will be consequences according to God's moral laws. And in the end, it will look like war and famine death, and all sorts of suffering. God's judgment is in allowing it. And in so doing, God shows that when the world feels most out of control, that there is actually one who's in control. Jesus told us there'd be days like this. When the world seems most out of control, God is revealed as being in control and allowing these things to take place as humanity's sin and its consequences run their full course. 
And then the fifth seal, justice for the martyrs. You know, when, when John was writing this book, persecution was a big deal. Rome was sponsoring, enacting, encouraging, leading the persecution of Christians. And hundreds of thousands of Christians would be killed for their faith under the Roman Empire. And in the future, in the tribulation period, under the leadership of Antichrist, and as the world grows more and more hostile to Jesus Christ and his people, persecution will become more and more of an issue. I don't see anything in scripture that says in the last days, general culture will reflect more the righteousness of Christ. It's going to become more and more contrary to Christ. And those who are committed to Christ will suffer. Paul said all who desire to live godly lives will suffer persecution. We are most inoculated against it here in America. Are we to be so foolish as to think that will always be how it is? even on this eve of the government, parliament in Great Britain kicking out missionaries, foreign religious workers saying, we don't, we don't want you in the country anymore. Even as Islam and ISIS and all these different things unfold. Are we so foolish as we look at North Korea and Somalia and Sudan and Eritrea and Indonesia and Saudi Arabia and all these huge places in the world where Christians are daily murdered? Are we, are we so foolish as to think that we'll escape any sort of persecution? Maybe. Maybe. But the good news is that God is just. And those who are his, who have suffered in his cause will see justice. That's what the fifth seal is about. It's too slow for them. God's, God's too nice in their estimate at this point. God's too nice. When will we have justice? It's coming. It's not till chapter 16. It's a long ways. <laughs> but it's coming. And then the sixth seal. The sixth seal, look at verse 12. And I looked when he broke the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake and the sun became black and sackcloth sackcloth made of hair and the whole moon became like blood. And the stars fell from the sky to earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. And the sky was split apart like a scroll when it's rolled up and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. So it seems that in the sixth seal there are cataclysmic changes that take place, cosmic convulsions, so to speak. This may be actual, it may be imagery. If you read the Old Testament, you're familiar with this sort of imagery. We see it in Joel, we see it in Amos, we see it in Isaiah, we see it in Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 4, there's invading armies that are going to conquer Israel and the same language is used. The sun will go dark and the stars will fall from the sky. So it's often imagery that's used in the Bible for really, really bad times. Times like this, when everything that seems stable in the world is gone. When it feels like anything that we used to be able to count on, we can't count on in the world anymore. We always count on, well, the sun will come up tomorrow, right? I can't believe I just did that. I cannot believe I just did that. Uh, we always believe that the sun will come up tomorrow (laughs) and that the moon will be there and that the mountains are immovable. 
This is either just imagery, symbolic language, or it's actual. But there's coming a time when even those things that seem so fixed will be shaken. Jesus told us there'd be days like these. Matthew 24. Matthew 24, verses 29 through 30. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man, Jesus, will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. So this is toward the end of God's judgment poured out on earth when Jesus is returning for the final, final judgment. And earth has gotten so out of control that you can't, can't count on the sun, can't count on the moon. Even the mountains are shaken. It's either imagery about how out of control things are or stuff like that will really take place. Either way, again, we see the kindness of God. Jesus told us there'd be days like this. When you see these things taking place, you know that his coming is near. You know that it's time to repent. Because God is a love, a God of love, excuse me, judgment is coming. He's always telling us beforehand. He's always leaving room for repentance, for turning to him to be saved. Because God desires that none would perish, but all would be saved through Jesus Christ. When it gets to this place, the end is very near. Look what Jesus said in John chapter 19, or chapter 3, verse 19. This is a judgment, again, that the light is come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Maybe you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus and this has been an uncomfortable message for you. I understand that. But please hear it as an invitation for you to come to the light who is Jesus Christ. To receive the forgiveness of sins. Don't love the dark. Come to the light who is Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins. Jesus was judge on the cross in your place so that you can escape the day of wrath because God loves you. He created you. He knows your name. He wants you to be forgiven, but you must come to Jesus. No one else ever died on the cross in your place and then rose from the dead. Only Jesus can give you the forgiveness of sins and new life. All you got to do is in your heart cry out, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I need a savior. You're the savior. Save me. I believe it. Forgive me of my sins. And that'll happen. That'll happen. Maybe that's already happened for you. Maybe you're a Christian. And we read this passage and we must ask ourselves the question. If Jesus is coming to judge sin, and if the light has come, and men have a tendency to love darkness, are there any areas of darkness in our lives that we're loving too much? That must be asked. If sin deserves this sort of judgment... And sin is not for us to play with. That must be said. As the followers of Jesus Christ, 
Where are we not walking in the light? And we're pursuing after darkness. Where are we not practicing the truth? Christians, you have come to the light. You've come to Jesus Christ. Now walk in the light. If sin deserves this sort of judgment, then be always repenting of it and pursuing righteousness by the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of Jesus Christ. And do so as men and women who are on mission that others might see our good deeds and glorify the Father in heaven so that we might be faithful witnesses so that people would look and say, I want to know this Jesus that they would escape wrath. The book of Revelation makes it clear that the stakes are high. But that Jesus has saved us from the wrath to come. Maybe if nothing more for you today, then there's just simply great reason to rejoice. That you have been forgiven of your sins and saved from wrath through the blood of Jesus Christ. Maybe your heart needs to be revived for the joy of that. The wonder of that. Maybe worship needs to be renewed in your life. Think about what we learned in chapters four and five of the angels and the elders of the church singing glory to Jesus at all times. Don't be passive. You have been washed white as snow, justified, sanctified, cleansed, made brand new. You have reason to rejoice in the person of Jesus Christ. May he be the source and the center of all of our joy. Amen? Lord, thank you for your word, hard as it is. And clear as it is. It's surprisingly clear when we look into it. We thank you, God, that you love us. Pray for anyone here who has never put their faith in Jesus Christ that they would today, that you'd help them, Holy Spirit, that they'd be saved and they'd know the joy and the beauty of forgiveness in knowing you. And I pray for myself and other brothers and sisters here who... sometimes make too light of sin. And the very things that you're coming to judge, we kind of fool around with and play secret games with. Lord, that you would help us. You'd open our eyes to those areas and you'd help us by your Holy Spirit to forsake sin and pursue righteousness for your namesake and for our own well-being. You are the God who loves us and teaches us a way to go. If only we would listen to your commandments, our peace would be like a river and our well-being like the seas. Thank you for that, Lord. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.